Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Hey, join us at Walters for the first ever Nats Chat podcast party. We'll hang out, watch playoff baseball, chat about the Nats, and get to know fellow fans of the team. The event begins at 7 p.m. at Walters, just across from Nationals Park, on Friday night, October 14th. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This will be the 13th pitch here for him in the first inning. The wind, the kick, here it comes. And a swing and a drive in the air to deep right center. Thomas going back, way back, looking up at the big wall, and it is gone. Goodbye. An opposite field home run, three rows into section 141 over the big 14-foot, 8-inch wall. And Reese Hoskins has done it again. And Reese Hoskins, the batter, driven in one of the Phillies' runs. Swings and lines one to right. Coming hard is Thomas, and he slides, catches it on a hop, and a run will score in the base hit. In from third is Segura, stock stopping at second, and on at first with a line drive single to right is Reese Hoskins. He drives in his second run of the game and 78th of the year, and it's now the Phillies four, the Nationals one. And welcome to Nats Chat for Saturday, October 1st, 2022, along with MadisonSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, for those of you who like to keep score of baseball games, try keeping score of the changes to this Nats series against the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park this weekend. We're supposed to have four games in three days. The original schedule was game on Friday night, day-night doubleheader on Saturday, game on Sunday afternoon. The schedule then got changed to day-night doubleheader on Friday, game on Saturday afternoon, game on Sunday afternoon. And now we have had a game on Friday afternoon, but the game on Friday night rained out. So we now have a day-night doubleheader on Saturday and a game on Sunday afternoon. Got all that? I didn't think so. Well, at least we did get a game in on Friday afternoon. It was a Nats loss, a 5-1 Nats loss. Uh, They're now 2-14 against the Phillies this season. Hurricane Ian, of course, has caused all kinds of problems for all kinds of people. The scheduling difficulties for Major League Baseball clearly are the least of the concerns. But, Mark, this already, you could say, has been a wild weekend for the Nats. And uh, you get the feeling that some more scheduling changes could be coming. Yeah, I would not count on anything else that has been announced actually happening as planned. You hope that as many of them as possible can go off as scheduled, but I think we've, you know, got to come to realize all they can do is play this by ear and play whenever it is good enough conditions out there to play, they're going to do it. But I think the logistical ticketing nightmare this causes, I think is the biggest problem. And it's nobody's fault, it's just the way this had to go down, but consider this If you had a ticket for Saturday night at 7.05, which was a 
ticket that you could have purchased months ago for a game scheduled for Saturday night at 7.05. There is, at this moment, going to be a game played Saturday at 7.05, but your ticket is not good for that game. Your ticket was good for today's game that was already played at 1 o'clock, and if you had a ticket for Friday night's game that was not played, that is now a ticket for Saturday night's game. Got all that? No, not at all. It's a nightmare scenario for that. Now, again, I'm not faulting anybody for it. It's unfortunately, I think they just looked at this and said, we have to essentially schedule a doubleheader every day and then see how much we can play that doubleheader. And then whatever we can't play, we push to the next day. And you keep pushing it back until you've run out of time. And that would be at the end of the night Sunday, at which point we find out if they may have to come back next Thursday, which is, of course, what nobody wants to have happen. But What are you going to do? It's the weather. I don't think there's a whole lot else they could have done to avoid this. It's really a worst case scenario because you're trying to cram four games into three days to begin with. And then you have, you know, this unusual thing of the remnants of Hurricane Ian. So there's that. And then you have the rushed nature of all of this because this is the final weekend of the regular season. So it's like three things all colliding at once. And it's rare that you have this, but we have this here. For this weekend, I do applaud MLB and the Nats. They have been, I think, for the most part, proactive. You know, they made the initial scheduling changes on Thursday and then on Friday called off game two of the doubleheader, you know, early in the evening. So we weren't waiting until midnight for the game to be postponed due to rain. I do want to ask this, though. So the rain on Friday in the Washington, D.C. area really didn't come until very late in the afternoon, early evening. This was a day-night doubleheader, 105-705. Could the Nats have done a traditional doubleheader and just go essentially from game one into game two? Or was that just not doable because of the aforementioned ticketing things that you just made mention of? So I know the Phillies were asking that question and they would have preferred to just play two games back to back, starting them as early as you could, try to get it all in before the rain arrived. My sense would be that that would not have been impossible, but it would have caused a major ticketing headache because... Again, if you had tickets to a game that was rained out and there's now no game that you can exchange that ticket for, there is no makeup game for it. They had four games originally scheduled, four separate tickets for those games. If you now condense that into three gates, which is what that would be, you have an issue where especially that would be what the Saturday night ticket, I would imagine they sold a good number of tickets for that game. They now have nowhere to go. And you could find it, you know, oh, we can squeeze you in here or there, or get you a ticket for next season. But I think that was the issue. Teams like day-night doubleheaders, it is two gates instead of one. There's financial reasons for it. Had this just been scheduled as a straight doubleheader all along, it would have made it a little easier to try to do that. The other part of it is, I don't know they really could have gotten two games in in time. It was started raining about 3.30 It was while the first game was still being played. Now, it didn't get that hard. They were able to finish that one. And whether it got hard enough or if they could have played an entire another game in the rain under those conditions, I don't know. They could have had a shot. But I think the real fear for everyone would be you don't want to start a game and then have to shut it down at some point and then make it up either at the end of the night or the next day or next week, whatever that is. The importance of these games for the Phillies and the Brewers, because they're the ones affected by it, I think demands that you do everything in your power to play nine innings consecutively and without interruption. Because that's where I think now you start talking about the integrity of the game and now everyone's records coming into play. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you could have maybe gotten in a rain-shortened game in a game two of a traditional doubleheader on Friday. Might have been close. Maybe you couldn't have done that, but I think there's a possibility that you could have done that. And, you know, I get the ticketing concerns. I understand that. I guess I would just say, if ever there's a time to do something like that, this weekend would be that time. Like, this is a real, you know, dire, I mean, I don't want to use that word because of what people are dealing with with this hurricane. Okay, what was happening with MLB is not dire, but from a baseball perspective, you know, this is a dire situation. Like, you're trying to get in all of these games. So, the other thing, too, is... The hours this weekend in the Washington, D.C. area that are dry are precious. And so I think that you do have to be creative. I think you do have to be flexible. You know, I don't think it'd be the worst thing in the world if, say, the game on Sunday, you even move back further from like, you know, what is it, 135 to like 1235 or 1135 a.m. You know, I don't know what the weather is supposed to be specifically for that day, but I think you really have to be willing and able to do things that you're maybe not always willing and able to do in a circumstance like this. Like if you're really trying to get in four games in three days, which is what they're supposed to do because of the lockout and the players and the owners all wanted every last nickel from this season then I think you have to be open to something. So I'm interested to see just how this all plays out from a scheduling standpoint and what MLB and the two teams are actually willing to do. Like, how bad do you want it, right? How bad truly do you want to get in all these games this weekend? I think we're going to find out. Yeah, and I think the urgency gets more dramatic with each passing day. On Friday, it's one thing to treat it this way. Saturday, maybe you have to be willing to wait it out or try something more creative. Certainly by Sunday, you have to do whatever you can to get as much of the games. And the other scenario, and I know some people from Philadelphia were wondering this one, why not relocate the whole series to another town where they knew the weather was fine or somewhere with a dome? That to me is the ultimate worst case, last ditch thing. And I've only heard of that happening when there truly was a natural disaster, hurricane, earthquake, you know, wildfires, crazy stuff like that, that prevented everybody from living their normal lives in that city. This is just rain. It's bad, obviously, and it's going to make it really tough to play. But I think that would have been too much to ask to say, you know, 24 hours beforehand, hey, because you're going to get a lot of rain in Washington this weekend, we're going to make everybody pack up and go play four games on a neutral field in Cincinnati or something like that. You know, I think that would have been excessive. It's not the hurricane itself coming through DC. It's a lot of rain as a result of a hurricane that won't be a hurricane anymore by the time it gets to us. To your point, you only really see a relocation of a series or a game when there's like a natural disaster in the original site of the game. The fact that there's going to be a lot of rain isn't really a natural disaster. Although I tell you, that game on Friday afternoon, I mean, it looked like there were about 12 people at that game. Now, the official attendance at the game, the paid attendance, 24,682. There weren't no 24,682 people in attendance at that game. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide 
that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Three balls, two strikes. Now the set. Runners go. The pitch. Swing and a shot up the middle. Fielded by Stott. Outfield grass. Whirls and throws. In time to Hoskins. And the game is over. Another outstanding play by shortstop Bryson Stott up the middle. And he throws out Hernandez at first. And the Phillies come out of the field to celebrate a victory. And the end of a five-game losing streak. They take game one of this split day-night doubleheader. There wasn't much to the game, but there was this, and man, did this really stand out. The Nats on Friday afternoon went 0 for 2 on runners trying to steal, and even that isn't entirely uh, accurate because one of the caught stealings came off a pickoff, and uh, guess who got picked off? It was Victor Robles. We can get to that. But the Phillies in this game went 6 for 6 on stolen bases. Uh, This was one of the more egregious instances I think I've ever seen of a team getting run on in a game. Riley Adams in this game officially went 0 for 6 on runners trying to steal. The Phillies over Eric Fetty's five innings in the game went 5 of 5 on runners trying to steal. This was amateur hour in terms of holding guys on base, in terms of throwing out guys on base. And it's always interesting with stolen bases allowed in baseball. It reminds me a lot of sacks in football because for years, people just always assumed, well, sacks are an offensive line thing. And as time has gone on, and analytics have come into football, it's really become known that no, sacks allowed is as much of a quarterback thing as sacks allowed is an offensive line thing. And stolen bases and controlling opposing teams running games, you could argue that's as much of a pitcher thing as it is a catcher thing. And so it was interesting to me that Davey Martinez during his postgame press conference put a lot of this on Eric Fetty. Whoever you blame though, that is something. Six for six on runners trying to steal Three of the stolen bases, by the way, were by the Phillies catcher, who, yes, is super athletic, JT Realmuto. He's not a normal catcher in terms of speed. But, man, that was something. That was like a track meet that the Phillies conducted on the base pass on Friday afternoon. Yeah, I was about to make the point that JT Realmuto was three for three, accounting for half their stolen bases. I think it's the first catcher to steal three bases in a major league game since Jason Kendall in 1999, something like that. So, uh, yeah, it was egregious, I think is a good way to put it. So I agree on these things. I always do wonder like, who are we putting the blame on? And more often than not, you think it's the pitcher not holding the runner on, being slow to the plate, not giving their catcher much of a chance. Davey obviously pointed that out, said that Eric Fetty's time to release the ball, to get the ball to the plate, about 1.5, 1.6 seconds. That's really slow. I think he thought he was quick, but that's not quick. 
So, I mean, we get, he's that's something that he has to work on. That can't happen, you know, every time they get on first base, he's got to be more aware. Fetty was trying to take some blame for himself. And then I thought it was interesting, and whether he's just saying this to defend his pitcher or whether he truly believes it, I don't know. But Riley Adams was really hard on himself. He said he really felt out of sync back there. He couldn't get a good grip on the ball. He was down on himself. He has not had a great year throwing out runners. Kbert Ruiz, we've talked about a lot, very good at throwing out runners. Riley Adams has not, neither has Tres Pereira. But Adams was really down on himself for this, and he felt like he shouldered even a majority of the responsibility for it. Now, again, he might be covering for them and you know, just feeling bad about the way he's been playing himself and taking responsibility for it. But at least in his mind, he had something to do with it. Whoever is to blame for it, you can't ever let it come to that. Six for six is truly egregious. And then when you couple that with the fact that the Nats were so bad themselves on the bases, uh, it just makes it even worse. Riley Adams over the last two major league regular seasons is eight for 60 on runners trying to steal. I mean, think about that. Eight for 60. That's it. And then, yeah, the juxtaposition of what went down with the Nats on the base pass on Friday afternoon. Now, we know the Nats have not exactly been a pristine base running team in this season. But how'd you like what happened in the bottom of the third inning when not one, but two Nats made outs on the base pass? So Victor Robles on Friday afternoon went one for four with a single and two strikeouts. He left four men on base, and he got picked off at first base. He, in the bottom of the third, had a leadoff first pitch, opposite field single to right center field. He has been piling up some hits lately. You know, he has not been the automatic out these last few weeks as he had been for so much of this season and, you know, so much overall of the last three seasons. But then, seconds after he got the single, and I'm not kidding when I say this, seconds after he got the single. Philadelphia's been running aggressively. Now the Nats have a good Stolen base threat on it first, although Falter and Real Muto, that combo could be tough to run on. Falter sets, looks to first, throws over there, and Robles took off. Hoskins throws to Seguri, tags out Robles, who goes in standing. And here's all that you need to know about what happened with Robles. He was out by so much, he didn't even slide into second base, okay? How often do you see that? Didn't even slide into second base. And then later in the bottom of the third, Lane Thomas, a two-out, seven-pitch walk. But then he got caught on an attempted steal of second base for the third out. And Thomas was out by quite a bit. Really hard to see that. And again, when you have that and then you put it versus the Phillies going again, six of six on runners trying to steal. Man, uh, (laughs) that is quite a discrepancy on Friday. Think of it this way. You send three batters to the plate in the inning. Only one of them hits into an out. The other two reach. And that's all the batters that came up to the plate in that inning. Nobody else ever came up because both runners who reached base immediately run themselves into outs. In Robles' case, breaking way too soon, no reason for that in that scenario. And in Thomas's case, I don't know, he's been pretty good, but like you said, he was out by a mile. There was no chance for him there. And so you're trying to do too much, which has been a problem at times uh, for this team, But you just can't give away outs to that extent from a lineup that we know is lacking in a lot of ways. You actually have a shot at a rally there against a pitcher that wasn't giving up anything in the game, and you just handed it right back to them. You didn't even have the opportunity with your best hitters in theory coming up later that inning to get any kind of anything going. And so those were especially bad. And then there was one more in the game. It didn't actually end up counting for very bizarre reasons, but Luis Garcia strayed too far 
off second base. It looked like Real Muto had him picked off, but because Victor Robles' backswing caught him, Real Muto, it's a dead ball. It doesn't count. Uh, it was kind of a bizarre play. We couldn't really understand what was going on because the umpires don't have a microphone to announce to everybody what they were calling. Oh, no, wait, they do. They just don't use it unless it's a challenge. But that was another one. In theory, they could have had three guys picked off or thrown out on the bases. They just cannot do that. They are not in a position to give away outs like that. I have brought this up before, but a good one-stop shop for trying to assess an overall team in terms of its base running is this fan graph stat, base running runs. The Nats came into Friday dead last in the majors in base running runs, minus 21.3. The next worst team, the Minnesota Twins, minus 14.3. The Nats dead last in base running this season and by quite a bit, and Friday was another bad day in the base running department and... You know, I know a lot of this is on the players. You know, what happened with Victor Robles, of course, has happened with him so many times. I do wonder, though, I mean, aren't there things that Davey and his staff can do to try to coach this out of people? Like, I don't think it's accurate to just say, well, this is all a Victor Robles thing or all a player thing. Like, this is a bad reflection on the staff. And we've talked so much over the two years of this podcast about player development. And I, I do think that this is a part of that. I mean, look, at the end of the day, a guy like Robles has to be better. There's no question about that. And not everyone is making these screw-ups on the base pass. But, geez, I mean, it feels like there should be something that Davey and his team can do to try to get the team better on the base pass. So many outs on the base pass this season. So many at home plate, as we have talked about And in this game, I mean, you are running yourself out of an inning as what happened in the bottom of the third. Yeah. So here's what bothers me about it. When it's repeat offenders, same guys doing it. And when it's repeat mistakes, when you see the same kind of mistakes happening, and we've certainly seen that across the board, whatever reason, the message is not getting through to them. They are not learning. They are not becoming better. Yes, some of that's on the players, but yeah, you have to look at a coaching staff and say, if your job is to take a guy who makes a mistake, explain to him why that was such a mistake, and help him get better to the point that he doesn't make that mistake again, well, that's not happening. And maybe in some players' cases it is, but certainly in a handful of these guys, we see the same mistakes over and over. And so either the players are not capable of getting that message, or the message isn't being conveyed in a way that will be effective to get through to them. So I do think it's a problem. I do think it's something they have to look at more carefully and try to correct because there's a lot of things this team has to be better at, certainly. They've made strides defensively from where they were, but I think base running is a big one. If you're not going to hit for power, we know they don't, and if you're lackluster in other areas, you better do the fundamental things right. And this team has been awful at fundamentals all year long. Don't give away outs. I mean, you don't have to do things that add to your run total, but don't do things that subtract from your run total. Don't give away outs like this team has given away outs so many times this season. So the Nats uh, for the game on Friday afternoon, just the one run, seven hits, a double, and six singles. Did draw four walks, but struck out 11 times, one for six with runners in scoring position. Joey Manessis did have a double and a single. His OPS on the year now at 928, but no other Nats player had more than one hit in the game. Then we had Eric Fetty as an at-starting pitcher on Friday afternoon. If you are familiar with Eric Fetty, you know how it goes with him. He puts a lot, and uh, I mean a lot, of guys on base. He did this again on Friday afternoon, but I have to say, there was almost like a uh, charming nature to his outing because 
He put so many guys on base, and the Nats had such a hard time controlling the Phillies' running game, and yet somehow Fetty only gave up two earned runs, which is kind of surprising. And I guess in a way, you almost say like, hey, credit to Fetty for limiting the damage. But yeah, I mean, he really did not pitch well in this game. Ultimately, three runs, two earned in five innings. He gave up seven hits, a home run, two doubles, and four singles. He issued a walk. He uh, recorded three strikeouts. He, over his five innings, threw a staggering 104 pitches, 62 strikes versus 42 balls. The Phillies went five of five on stolen bases during Fetty's time in the game. But I guess you say to his credit, he only allowed the two earned runs. The damage could have been a lot worse. He did not pitch well. He puts way too many guys on base. His whip for this season is 157. His ERA is at 527. But I mean, if you're looking for a silver lining, it could have been much worse with Eric Fetty pitching on Friday. It could have been a whole lot worse. There was only one clean inning the entire time. The first inning alone, I think, says it all. 30 pitches to six batters in the first inning. Somehow only one of them scored on a home run by Reese Hoskins. This was kind of vintage Eric Fetty. I don't necessarily mean that in a great way. He does often find a way to get through this and give his team a chance. The problem is he just, the pitch count gets so high, he cannot go deep in the game with any consistency. He's at 99 pitches after five innings. I assume that was it for him. They let him take them out again for the sixth. Faces one batter who reached on an error, which we have to talk about that throw by um, C.J. Abrams, that it's a good thing the netting is up behind the dugout because whoever was sitting in the front row would have had their clock taken out. It was a laser of a throw that was so high it hit the netting above the dugout on the fly. And then Fetty comes out after that. So he got to go out there and face one batter and then that was it. This is just who he is. I don't think at this point there's a whole lot of reason to think that that's going to change. If you can still be somewhat effective and limit him to two runs, then good for you. But it's just a tough way to go about this and think that you're going to, it's pitching defensively. It's sort of like, just go as far as you can, try to limit as much. It's not an aggressive way. It's not a, a way to go out and win a game as a pitcher. It's him just trying not to lose the game. And unfortunately, that's just who Eric Fetty is, I think. Yeah, it's bend but don't break pitching. And when you put a lot of guys on base and you're not good at holding them on, that's kind of a bad recipe. And we saw that come out in a bad way for the Nats. So with that C.J. Abrams error, Abrams in a Phillies one-run sixth on Friday afternoon, a throwing error. He on a leadoff grounder by Nick Castellanos, made a charging scoop of the ball behind second base, and then airmailed a way-too-high throw to first base. And airmailed, I don't even think does this justice. This was as like high of a throw as you'll ever see. This was nowhere close to Joey Manessis at first base. I, I got to think Abrams like lost his grip on the ball. I don't know what happened with a throw like that. You know, I'll say this about C.J. Abrams. The range is fabulous. The athleticism is ridiculous. But he does have a bit of a throwing issue. You know, it's not unlike Luis Garcia. We've seen Abrams do this now multiple times in recent weeks, have some bad throws. It's certainly fixable. I think you still should feel really good about C.J. Abrams defensively at shortstop. But this is emerging as a nit to pick. Uh, He is prone to the throwing error. And he had another one on Friday afternoon. Yeah, I do think over time he's going to get better at it as he gets more consistent with things like footwork and, you know, knowing when to throw hard, when not to. I mean, he rifled that ball. I I didn't see, I don't know if you can look that up, the uh, velocity of his throw, but it had to be like 95 miles an hour. He just whipped it over there as hard as he could. And it's a matter of just getting enough reps and understanding what kind of effort you need to give on what kind of plays. 
and knowing, okay, well, if I field it this way, here's the throw I need to make. And if I field it this way, I've got to add more to it or take something off it, that kind of stuff. So I think he'll get there. I, I think there's enough good there to see that he can be excellent in the field. I think he's just young and needs some time and a lot of reps to get it done. One other thing with the Nats on Friday, the Mackenzie Gore watch is officially over. He will not be making a major league start for the Nats this season. I don't think that this is stunning, but uh, what was the reasoning that was given for why Gore will not be starting a major league game for the Nats? It's not stunning, but it is a little disappointing. I think we all were hoping just to get a glimpse of him, especially after Cade Cavalli made only one start and then got hurt. I know McKenzie himself really wanted to pitch. I think there's a combination of things here. One of them is the weather, unfortunately. He would have been set up to go Saturday when there was the original doubleheader scheduled. Now we do have another doubleheader scheduled. Uh, That would be his turn to pitch. He couldn't have gone Friday. That was too soon. And I think just the wet conditions, they probably did not want to take a chance having him warm up, then maybe not be able to start or start the game and then not be able to finish it. Things like that, or, you know, or just slip on the mound, whatever else. You combine that with, as we've talked about, though the elbow is healthy and he's confident in that, the stamina has not come back yet. And so I think they were worried about putting him out there to pitch and maybe only getting three innings out of him and then having to burn up your bullpen at a time when they have a bunch of games in a short amount of time and meaningful games that they have to play. So I think they put that all together and decided, you know what? You're healthy. You made it back from the injury. You pitched in minor league games. You're going to be confident going to next year. Go get a full spring training. Build yourself up the way you're supposed to. You don't have to try to rush it just to make it back for one start. So that's the thought process. I'm a little disappointed. I would have really liked to see him. I know he's disappointed. He wanted to pitch at least one game. But it's funny. I guess he said to Davey, he wants to show them as an organization why they traded for him. And Davey said to him, hey, you don't need to worry about that. We know why we traded for you. We know you're going to be really good for us. We're going to take that their word for that. We're not going to know for sure until next April when we see him actually pitch in a big league game for the first time. Well, it's going to be exciting to see him pitch whenever he does pitch for the Nats at the major league level. It just never felt, at least to me, I don't know, maybe I'm alone on this, but it always felt like there was a good chance he wasn't going to make this long-anticipated major league start for the Nats. The rehab outings did not go particularly well. This entire process was taking a while And the goal eventually became, you know, one start. Like, that was it. And so your window was just so tiny. And so it was like, all right, the likelihood here of him actually making that start never felt great. And then you throw on top of that this, like, Murphy's Law that has governed everything with the Nats this season, which is you expect the worst. I mean, I hate that that's the case, but that has been the case. You know, it's funny you just mentioned Cade Cavalli. Think about this. In 2022, Steven Strasburg, Joe Ross, Cade Cavalli, and Mackenzie Gore combined to make two starts for the Nats at the major league level the entire year, okay? Now, maybe you don't want to include Gore in that because the goal was never for him to make more than one, maybe two starts. But I mean, how about that? Strasburg, Ross, and Cavalli combined to make two starts at the major league level the entire season. It has been that kind of year. And I didn't even mention Cole Henry, a guy who was surging through your system and he has to undergo surgery for thoracic outlet syndrome, and now his career is in question. I mean, this guy went from being one of your top pitching prospects to now he may be done or at the very least forever impacted in a negative way. It's been that kind of of a year. So yeah, I don't know that anyone can be stunned by this with Gore. And you know, all you can hope for is health and success, but also just some better like juju for this team 
with these pitchers next year. You know, some good vibes, some good things happening because you certainly have not had that this season. Yeah, I mean, there's a best case scenario next year that would see Mackenzie Gore, Cade Cavalli, and Josiah Gray each make 30 starts for them. How realistic is that? I don't know. (laughs) I'm not sure anybody knows the answer to that. But it is a reminder that as an organization, you have to develop as much pitching depth as possible because the odds of everybody panning out, everybody staying healthy are really slim. I think we were spoiled here for a long time with the likes of Max Scherzer, Jordan Zimmerman when he was here. Even Gio Gonzalez was always very durable. Strasburg, Corbin's been very durable. Strasburg was the one from that generation who would deal with injuries on a regular basis. We have to remember that's not necessarily the norm. And you hope that those three young stalwarts do actually become stalwarts and lead them for many years, each of them throwing close to 200 innings. Odds are it won't be that way. And so you better have as many other options as possible to account for that because if you just assume that those three are going to each make 30 starts and you don't need anything beyond that, you're probably going to be in trouble. Yeah, it is quality, but it is also quantity. And you just got to acquire pitching prospects. You got to add to that inventory with the idea that probably, you know, less than half will pan out. But if just two or three pan out, that can be good enough to lead you to great things for a long time. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast Nats chat podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram at Nats Chat Podcast. You can get yourself or someone who you know a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to natschatpodcast.square.site. Don't forget, first ever Nats Chat Podcast party. Rain or shine, this is uh, with a roof on it, so you don't have to worry about this being rained out. Friday night, October 14th at 7 at Walters, right across the street from Nationals Park. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. Two balls, two strikes to Garcia. Eflin in his first inning out of the Philadelphia bullpen, ready on the hill. Here it comes. Swing and a line drive base hit the other way into left. Alex calls, waved around third. Schwarber's throw to the plate is up the line a bit. It hits call and skips by toward the dugout. Garcia skids to a stop after rounding second. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.